Hey everyone, this is Connor Bronson, executive producer of the Dev Interrupted podcast and occasional guest host. With the holidays fast approaching, the team here at Linear B will be going on a short break to unwind and spend some time with our families. Coinciding with that break will be the end of season one of the podcast and the beginning of season two. You'll hear from us one more time before the year is over on Wednesday, December 29th. That episode will mark the end of season one of the pod and we'll return to our normal schedule on January 8th, 2022 with the start of season two. We have some incredible guests lined up for season two and I can't wait to introduce you to them all. From our family here at Linear B to yours, happy holidays, and now let's get on with the episode. This episode is sponsored by Linear B. Accelerate your development pipeline with data-driven engineering metrics, continuous improvement automation, and project visibility while cutting your software development cycle time in half. Sign up for your free demo at LinearB.io and mention the Dev Interrupted Podcast discount for one month free when you sign up for an annual pro membership. Welcome to Dev Interrupted. I'm your host, Dan Lines, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Soiler, the VP of Engineering at Unbabble. Quick reminder for our listeners, if you haven't already rated and reviewed the show on your podcasting app of choice, particularly Apple Podcasts, please do so. Reviews are a crucial way that our show gets discovered. Jonathan, let's start with giving our audience the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better before we jump into your role at Unbabble. I understand you have a degree from Oxford in philosophy, psychology, neurophysiology. With that type of interesting background, how did you get into your path of engineering leadership? I went to university in the days before machine learning degrees, and there was no machine learning. So I actually went to university to study mathematics and was kind of interested in the brain and connectionist theory, and there was nowhere to go and study. I didn't know at the time there was some places in California and Canada, obviously, in Toronto, but there wasn't much uh, on offer, and I I changed courses halfway through and came out with a degree in neurophysiology, philosophy, which was absorbing, and psychology. That's really interesting. What effect has that had on you? Good question. I think when machine learning starts to be a big thing, it certainly made it attractive. It was like, yes, that's that's what I was trying to study 10, 20 years ago. Uh, and and now it's it. Now, finally, I can remember when I was studying, was very interested in what even then was called artificial intelligence. And I remember a quote from a French philosopher that it was neither intelligence and lacked artifice. And I just thought, well, okay, maybe now's not the time. So after 20 years, years pause, some of the skills that I developed became uh, marketable and uh, and companies started working the area. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you're in machine learning, AI, anything like that, those are the sexiest buzzwords in the engineering community for a little bit now, right? Yes. (laughs) The last 15 years. Now, also in your background, I see, you know, you've been a CTO, obviously you're the VP of engineering at Unbabble, an incredible company. We're going to get into that. Was there any like inflection point in your engineering career that kind of launched you into being a leader? Uh, it, it was a um, little more than I was working as a, I started as an engineer, worked as a developer. And then back in the 90s, I don't people remember, back in the 90s, the internet came along. And I started a business, started a business with some acquaintances that really started with a business plan that was as simple as the internet will be big. People will use the internet to do real business. So they need security. 
So from that was born a little company that made some good decisions around working with Java. We started with cryptographic protocols, and I so the cryptographic algorithms, and then built protocols, and then started to work with um, non-repudiation and some of the different identities, some of the building blocks that you need to build meaningful, secure systems. And it was through that that I, I was part of the leadership team of that business and started to enjoy working with engineers, understanding how you build products. And it was the early days and product management didn't exist as a thing in quite the way it is today. And that just, uh, and then that business was sold to some microsystems in 2000. And that really launched me into a career in technology and technology leadership and working in the space. That's incredible. Was that a kind of security business? Was it, I guess, maybe not considered a startup, but was it like a small company that you got to grow with or was it already big when you got there? It was a couple of people sitting behind a motorway service station in a place called South Mims off the M25, just north of London. So that's amazing. Behind the service station, you'll see a white house. It was there when I joined. And I think the first day we spent cleaning the walls and not really talking about products. And we grew from there to be about 70, 80 people. We started in, in London. We ended up with quite a presence in, in the US. And because we picked Java as the language to grow with, we built very close relationships with the great team at Sun and the Java soft team. And it, it was a fabulous experience. I was sort of in my mid-20s at the time. It was just yeah. great to be great. It was an exciting time. A lot of people probably in our audience would love to be in your position, like a VP of engineering of an incredible company. A lot of them are kind of like one point in their career will take a risk or say, hey, I don't know, maybe if security was the thing back then, but hey, I'm going to go join this little company or I'm going to try something. Did you feel like you were taking a risk or was it just like, hey, this is something interesting. I'm going to try it. It was the latter. So there was no risk. There was no sense. In, in your in your twenties, even now, you, you, you don't feel I'm not losing anything. It's exciting. Uh, I have no idea how this will turn out. In fact, I don't really know how the product develops. I don't know. We had some competition. I don't know where the competition will come from. Let's. Just, it's a good idea. I can see the value. I know people will pay money for this. Yeah. And we're feeling. You know, if you think about how electronic commerce at the time, it was called electronic commerce. How electronic commerce is going to develop? Well, fundamentally, it needs this thing. So, you know, this thing has value. We really went from that. Thanks for sharing that story. A little bit of a transition now to Unbabble and your role there and the team that you've built. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Unbabble, what it does and kind of your role and your team there? Unbabble is a translation company. Dominant use case is customer service. So if you think about a big multinational, let's say Acme Corporation, uh, and they employ customer service agents. And the customer service agents work in global markets, so they need to speak different languages. Well, Unbabble as a translation company plugs into those customer service agents. And so you can use English agents to deal seamlessly with Japanese or German or French customers without the agent needing to speak any other language than English, dealing with the tone of voice, dealing with the style of the company that, that Acme is. And the end customer, the Japanese customer, or the German customer, the French customer, will have no idea that they're talking to an English agent. And so you imagine for a, a business that is running customer service globally, it means that you don't have to scale all of your language support to handle peak load. You don't need 
enough Japanese agents to handle Christmas Day all year round. You you can employ enough people, and then when you hit a certain limit, you can get English agents to pick up the Japanese language and deal with with Japanese tickets and chats and um, inquiries. And then similarly, it just it gives you in the customer service space um, some insulation from the inefficiency that language support through humans will drive. We work in partnership with some of the biggest multinational companies in the space. We work with many of the BPOs in the space, providing real-time for chat, very high-quality translations in the customer service world, integrating with their agent systems. Is most of the technology built around like a chat base? Like I'm, uh, you know, I go to, I don't know, somebody's website, I'm a customer, I need support, and I'm talking to, to them through a drift chat or whatever chat. How does it actually work in a real life experience? So if you, you think we have sort of two base products at the moment, one is synchronous. It's an ongoing chat conversation. And so it needs to be quick. And the other is asynchronous, yeah. uh, when you submit a ticket and you've got some time to wait. And if you think about w- what we have to do translation, we have machines to do the translation. Right. Machines are quick and they're cheap or relatively cheap, but we know they make mistakes and machine translation isn't perfect. And we have humans. Humans are a bit slower. They're a bit more expensive, but they generally do a human quality job. And so when Babel's world is about bringing the two together. And the thing you need to bring machines and humans together is something that understands whether the machine has done a good job. And that we call that big QE and Babel is one of the world's innovators and has recently released something called Comet, which is open source, which allows a machine to mark another machine's homework. And so effectively, the machine does the translation. And then another machine works out whether it's likely to be a good English or a good human, human-like translation. And at that point, you can take a decision. Well, I'll trust that. I'll go with the machine translation. I'll go with the artificial intelligence, or I'll pass that on to a human. So obviously, if you're dealing with a synchronous translation, you want to focus on the machine translation and you send that back because you haven't got time to go to a human. Yeah. (laughs) But what you can do is understand where you weren't that sure about the translation and then get a human afterwards to have a look and annotate and then feed that back into your machine translation engines to allow them to learn and do a better job going forward. And then when you've got some time, the machine does the translation. You can then take a decision, do I use them, reduce the cost, or do I go with the human translation and I get the quality up, but it's going to take me more time. And being able to sort of decide between cost, quality, and performance gives you the ability to look at different translation use cases and come up with innovative solutions that are very disruptive. And that's in Babel's business. That's why Babel is different to traditional translation houses and LSPs and organizations that play in the space. It's amazing. I mean, the kind of like the pain point or the use case makes so much sense. I mean, if you're in a, you're a customer, you're in a situation that you're trying to, usually if you're talking to like support or you're, you know, you're kind of like, I want to get something solved here. And you can tell instantly if you're talking to someone, typically, probably if they're not using Unbabble, that are, is not in your native language. It can be very, very frustrating. For the business, and there's lots of research that says, if you do business in the language of your customer, you will build a better customer relationship. For sure. <laughs> Arrive to do business in that language. 
I don't even need any data to prove that to me. I just know that basic hu- human instincts to- totally make sense. And we can see it, you know, some of the valuations I've seen coming from Unbabble. I don't know if it's official, but you're on your way. Billion dollar, you know, value. So totally makes sense to me. What I wanted to dive in just a little bit, you know, from a technical perspective, what are the challenges in building a product that, you know, needs to translate these languages on the fly? You've got a number of different challenges. You've got performance. Yeah. You've got the fact that to get a request for a translation into a canonical form, the machine translation will recognize and do a good job with. You've got a lot of processing steps to understand what's been submitted and how you you get that standard form. You have the QE engine. We have sort of talented engineers that work in that space. And then you've got the ability to schedule work for the large community of human translators. And you want to use their community as effectively as you can. And you want to keep the work coming for them and make sure the right person picks up the right task and also keep it performant, keep it reliable. You're part of big brands conversation with its customers and the service can't disappear. It needs to be reliable. So you have all of those challenges of providing, and it needs to be 24-7. We have global customers around the world. It needs to be there all the time. Yeah, there's really no room for lag or we're not having a good performance day in prod or something something like that. How uh, How do you, I guess, set up your team from a reliability standpoint to ensure that it's always working and working appropriately? We have a good SRE team, which is always yeah. a, a place to start. We have good practices in uh, monitoring and metrics. And we, but like many organizations, we, we have small empowered teams. Those teams are not only responsible for building the software, they're responsible for their operation. And so if a service fails or is slow, it is that team that gets out of bed at two o'clock in the morning to deal with it. And as a result... That team tends to be very focused on testing and reliability. And I think that approach of small empowered teams responsible for development and operation seems to be in the industry delivering the, the best results in terms of reliability and performance. It makes the team accountable and teams know accountable, not just for building great software, but for building it to operate and operating it and seeing it work performantly. You mentioned it's not necessarily unique to Unbabble. And of course, Un- Unbabble is a linear B customer and we've worked together. What I have seen is, and I, I talk with a lot of engineering teams, one of the characteristics of more, uh, I would consider elite engineering teams or high functioning engineering teams kind of is that end-to-end responsibility taking into account, yeah, you're going to own what you ship into production. Is that a philosophy that you had to put in from the beginning? Do you hire with that? Like, how does that permeate for you? That, that was here, the company that was here when I arrived. So the company uh, does a startup business. The founders had spent a lot of time looking at best practice. They'd read Accelerate and they'd read all of the books about how you develop that sort of high performance. And, and as a startup, they had developed some fabulous services that worked and could work that way. And there's some things that we had to work on to get the services robust and resilient and work on the deployment pipeline so that, you know, the testing was there. Your deployment pipeline is the way you manage risk. And so we spent some time, a lot of time, just making sure those pipelines did their job. 
And engineers love working that way. It seems to be much more natural. You know, remember the, the days when you build software, you threw it over a friend's to a QA team. You sometimes throw it back. And eventually that software would find its way to production. I mean, that was, as an engineer who worked that way, that was just an inherently frustrating way of working. And then finding there was a, a, an issue in production that you weren't told about and would come to you when it had escalated. Um, that was a hugely frustrating way of working as, as an engineer. And this is a much more natural way. The idea that you could, you have control, you know, even over the infrastructure and the, the resources that an application has, and you can push that out. And there's tests, all of the tests of the pipeline to ensure something is production ready to go. I mean, it is a, for an engineer, it's just a, a very natural way to work. We've seen, you know, even just like the happiness of engineers, if you have low cycle time and you, you know, fast cycle time and I can get my code out to production and I do have the ownership, that just feels better. So I had one job in my career as a developer where what my first job out of school, I was building actually like voice recognition software. It was for nuance, uh, naturally speaking, also for like support agents and that kind of thing. But yeah, I worked on a project for like six months, which felt like it was a long time. And then it got passed over to QA and I never even know what happened to it. I actually quit within a, a year and, and joined the startup. So I don't even know if my code made it to production. I just felt like that was the oddest experience ever. And then after that, I, I joined a startup and we were more so on the agile. But yeah, I, I really, uh, you know, because I can see your metrics and I can appreciate all the work that you've done there. I can see it's a very, very important, I guess, uh, tenant of your culture. Yes. And, and you, you spoke, we've adopted Linear B. Linear B has been great. But what we didn't do was to give Linear B to the senior management team and say, you know, now manage the engineering team. We gave it to the engineers and said, this is healthy. So now, you know, we can see whether you're healthy or not. Just make everything green. Show us that the world is healthy. And if it's red, explain why it's red. Explain why the code reviews weren't done. And maybe it's a small team and people were out for a reason. And, and actually giving them the tools and saying, look, it's, it's your job to show that you've got healthy practices um, has helped the culture. Let's dive in there a little bit. You know, there are different tools out there that can give you metrics about your engineering people or whatever you want. What made you choose to work with our team and, and choose Linear B? Uh, I think the, the easy things is you did a lot of the heavy lifting. So for us, we've talked for ages about, well, we should be measuring cycle times. We should have more information about the developer workflows and we work in and we have Jira to manage, to, to do work management and a, a bunch of other tools that the engineers use. And it was just easy to find a tool that's seamlessly integrated. I think we're up and running within a week or two. I spent some time at the CTO, Joe Grasson, who's a real expert in the machine translation space, looking at the results and thinking about the teams. Then we just gave it to the engineering leads who got their teams using it and started using the the product stand-ups and understanding how they were doing. And the Linear B team did work with the teams to understand the tool, helped us configure the environments, helped with Slack integrations, and it was adopted seamlessly within a very short period of time. If we're just you know, looking at some of the higher level numbers, you've actually had a 60% decrease in cycle time, which is pretty cool to see. And I imagine that's, I mean, as much as it's about Linear B, 
I imagine, in large parts of that is people just realizing they're being measured and thinking about it and remembering that cycle time is something that's quite important and just changing behavior a little bit. But it, well, it hasn't happened through any wind cracking or it's, it happened very naturally. So that's completely right. One thing that we see around our customer base is the concept of conversations. We're having conversations now. We're talking about these things that matter, where there's bottlenecks you know, within our organization, now that we can have visibility in, into the numbers. Have you seen that at Unbabble, the conversation starting to happen? But not only the conversation, but the, I'm going to, to use a buzzword, psychologically safe conversations. Yeah. So, you know, we, we try and have a, an environment where people can raise issues and talk about issues. Not everything goes well. Sometimes we do the wrong thing. Um, sometimes teams make mistakes. They don't get the planning right. And you just have a culture where someone can put their hand up and say, actually, I've got this wrong. Well, things aren't working. I need to find out why. And so you can have conversations. Why is the cycle time long? Oh, yeah. Okay. And there's no downside. Obviously, you know, if, if mistakes or issues are being made repeatedly, then you need to take some action. But most engineering teams are self-correcting. If you show them how they're measured and you work with them in a psychologically safe way, they want to do a good job. Most engineering teams want to deliver something of value and do a good job and want to be seen to be doing a good job. So they will change the way they work and they will be very mindful of what they understand good is. Absolutely. the You call it psychological safety. It seems that that's kind of just built into the culture at Unbabel. But you're right. If you have that safety and everyone gets onto the same page of what is happening within engineering, we can all see it. There's the visibility we're talking in, I guess, in the same language, actually going back to your you know, original, <laughs> one of the original purposes on Babel, if we're on the same page, we're speaking the same language. Now we can have a conversation, maybe where are the bottlenecks or where could I use some help in my delivery pipeline? It actually seems like you you have that built into the culture, yeah? Yeah, so it's, it's how do we do a better job? And we all want to do a better job. We want to be world-class. I don't think there's anyone who's in the industry who's just doesn't want to do a good job. I think if you can inspire people to do better, then teams naturally think about how are we working? Oh, look, our code review depth isn't as deep as it could be. And maybe that's contributing to some of the issues when we push to production. So if you have those conversations and you work with teams on the problems, teams just get better and you, you build much stronger culture. We've all worked in, you know, toxic environments where yeah. that's not the case, where you can't have those conversations where you're expected to be perfect with every release, which as an engineer, I remember my days as an engineer, but manifestly wasn't. Um, and you made mistakes or you misunderstood the brief or you didn't understand quite what the, the requirement, I would say user requirement in, in my days as an engineer, quite often you were given a very large specification, which by the time you'd worked your way through, the world had changed and the user yeah. wasn't written. Let's get what you built. I mean, they were, the, they were the days that I learned my trade, but things are very different now. And, and also, Unbabel is much more of the company that, as an ambitious 25-year-old, I would have wanted to work at. I mean, it has that. You turn it up, you do your best. We have a culture of learning. You can make mistakes. We think about measurements. We think about great practice. Uh, and we engage the staff. We don't just tell them how you work. This is how you work. You know, many of the good ideas come from the engineers. Most of the good ideas, pretty much all of the good ideas, come from the engineers. And then there's a bottom-up grounds to the, to the culture. 
that that's the perfect way I think to see improvement and, and you're totally embracing it. You mentioned for for example uh, review depth and and for our listeners review depth relates to how much feedback is a developer getting on their pull requests in terms of comments. In terms of the the metrics that you care about at on on Babel, how are you approaching it? So, you know, what metrics do you look at and is it more of guidance from you as the VP of engineering or is it kind of like here's the guidance and uh, team leaders kind of each one of you are responsible like how do you approach the metrics the metrics get pushed out so it's up to the engineering leads to know that they're running a healthy team yep. feel accountable for the way that their teams work and what are we the metrics that we're interested in obviously the cycle times which just uh, great. We, we just, how big is the MR? How big is the change that you're making? Because if you're making huge changes, we have problems. You're doing too much work without checking it in. And, you know, we, we know small changes often results in a better product. We look at the amount of rework against new work. Okay. Um, yeah. And there are times when you are reworking code. And um, there are times when that happens, but just making sure that we expect what we're seeing and the teams have a healthy, amount of new work we're making some progress we're doing some new things rather than just going over old code and dealing with issues in the old code so there are there are lots of things we, we look at the code review um, cycles how quickly are changes picked up for that peer review because yeah. we know that's important and are those peer reviews happening and is everybody doing peer reviews and just making sure that those things are happening means that it, i get a bit more sleep at night that the product when it gets pushed to production, is in the right state. Yeah, yeah. The peer reviews, the pull request process, it's such a collaborative process. It's a social process. We have a lot of engineers that are now working remote, or you might have people all over the world. And one of the investment areas that we've done within Linear B is what we call our Worker B feature. So, well, you know, essentially what Worker B is, is this kind of intelligent bot that each engineer either can turn on themselves or you can turn it on at a team level and it provides awareness on pull requests. Hey, someone's waiting for you or here's how long it's going to take to review this code. Maybe you should start it after your meeting so you can finish it end to end. How have those worker B team policies been used at Unbabble? They've been used. I mean, we couple them with good rituals. So for engineering, it's still a very social process to yeah. have it done well. The team needs to talk together, they need to understand what they're waiting on. We have lots of dependencies by team. So we have a lot of small teams, but they have a lot. If you imagine what we have is a great big pipeline and the change that one team makes is going to impact people down the pipeline. And so the dependencies between teams are quite significant. And we also work in a way where we have teams that are very much focused on the translation process. And then we have another set of teams that translate that tra translation process for each of the use cases that we're targeting yep. or provide reports and information for our customers. So we have two very different styles of working with fundamental dependencies, which we try and contractualize through APIs in, in a, a fairly established way. But there needs to be a lot of social communication within the team and good, strong rituals. And also in the planning process and the understanding of dependencies between the teams. So the work of me stuff absolutely supports that and contributes to it. But in, and, and as great as Lydia B is, 
without those rituals and without being played into those conversations, then, you know, it's, it's not going to work. So it, together with the rituals, together with the conversations, the socialization of change, the people know what's happening in the business, and it works very well. It always has to be that combination. And I appreciate you, you know, taking a little time to talk about Linear B. And we're really just a catalyst of what you've already been doing and helping with those conversations and the culture. Flipping us back to Unbabble, there's actually something that I was really wondering while we were talking earlier. When you're doing a language translation, there's so much like nuances to the way that people might chat or type or different like uh, slang, I guess, is what we would say in the U.S., And that's kind of evolving, I think, all the time throughout human history. How do you account for that? Uh, Well, it's emojis. We we also have to deal with cultural differences in tone, when to be polite, when to be formal, when to be informal. Yes. And have corporate choices about how they communicate. So one company may decide to be very formal. Another company may decide, hey, we sell a different style of product, we're going to be very informal. And I, we spend a lot of time um, on vocabulary, so on, on term bases, so the, 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 the translations of particular terms that are used, but also in the style. If you look at our machine translation engines, they have different styles. And we adapt machine translations to the way that a particular brand talks. So if you have a gaming company that's very informal with yeah. its customers, it's machine translation service will work very differently in the same language to maybe that of a financial institution that talks to its customers in a very different, a much more formal way. And that's a fundamental adaptation in the way that we work. And then over time, because we're passing traffic through the engine, we're retraining constantly to understand the way that a company should be uh, working. And we're using editor communities to validate and annotate and understand whether the machine translation is doing a great job. So it's quite an intense yeah. to get to a, a communication style that fits a brand or fits a particular company. That's really cool. Are you doing anything? I, I don't know if this is possible, but let's say that a translation has happened and that's been sent to the customer. Okay, here's like an answer to something. Are you able to also kind of read how the customer is responding to that and then learn, oh, this, you know, I'm making it up here, but hey, this was a little too formal, or yeah, can you learn little, from the responses? <laughs> we, well, we can. We absolutely yeah. can. And one of the things that we allow the customers to do is feedback on the translation. So an important part of our process is to get that customer feedback. Oh, there was a mistake here. This term wasn't right. Oh, the tone wasn't right, or the customer complained about. And so you know, and, and we're very open with our customers about also the quality of the translations that we're providing to them, because we know most of the translations will hit them up, but there may be a small number of bad translations. We want to get them to optimize the service. So we want to understand, well, did we, for instance, rely on a machine translation and we shouldn't talk, we should have sent it to a human? Or did the human not do a good translation? Didn't they understand the domain? Do, do we need to give them more context to, to make an accurate translation? So that, that focusing, and that's where you get to your continuous improvement. We know we're doing a good job because we spend a lot of time thinking about how we make incremental improvements to the translation quality in different language pairs that we work with. And a lot of the work that we do is around that. 
That's really cool. Yeah, I guess that's the name of the game. Continuous improvement, right? Absolutely. <laughs> now, I, I see that Unbabble has this global multilingual CX report that has come out. Was there anything from the report that you think would be interesting to tell our audience about? Yes, there was fabulous stuff in the report that kind of backs up lots of the key messaging of the business, the importance of speaking the language of your customer and the contribution to CSAT, those sorts of metrics. When you talk with and can work with the language of your customer, the ability to effectively service your business through digital channels. I think sometimes you read that customer service is cheap or free. And then you look at what big organizations do to service their customers. They have call center agents around the world. They have contracts with BPOs to handle the volume. They're obsessed with having people available to deal with issues and to deal with them quickly and successfully to get a a positive out to a short period of time. And the role of language and the ability to manage language, we call it internally language. Your language operations is absolutely fundamental to your organizational ability to do that. And actually, increasingly, if you think about what Babel is doing as a business, from the point of view, if you imagine you're a senior exec in any business, then you have language issues right the way through your business life cycle, from the marketing you do and the sales contacts that you make, to the packaging and instructions in the products that you sell, to the way that you service your customers, you follow up. And you deliver support the way through that life cycle. You need to be able to work effectively in different languages if you want to be a global business. And, and increasingly, I mean, one of the things we, increasingly we see is you know, that absolutely used to be the domain of the, the large multinational. But increasingly, it's the fast growing organizations who are um, rolling their product out into different markets quickly, can't afford to maybe necessarily go out and recruit all of the native speakers that they need to, to manage the business at risk. And this sort of language operations will understand all of the bits of the way you use language as an organization and to, to manage the efficiency and the resources that you have to deliver the best business outcome is a large part of the conversations that we have as a business. And I mean, I think language, op- language, language operations is becoming an increasingly part of, of lots of people's worlds. Well, Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the pod today, talking to us about your career and how Unbabble Engineering is operating and some of the ways that you're utilizing Linear B. I know that you have a lot of hiring that's going on at Unbabble, probably a lot of engineering roles open. If I was interested in joining Unbabble's team, how could I do that? Just contact us, parisitunbabble.com. We are hiring. Um, we are hiring good engineers. We're hiring product designers, product management, product managers. We're hiring lots of people in the sales and go-to-market world in most of our teams. And what can you expect is a friendly, challenging, rewarding place to work. Um, working for a business that is changing the way people do things and building a more effective communication. So it is a, a great place to be working. And I'll just you know add on to that. I have worked closely with the Unbabble team. This is an elite engineering team. As we talked about, they have the right culture, the right processes. So if you are looking for your next opportunity, please check out Unbabble hiring opportunities. We'll include all of those links for you into the description below. 
Also be sure to join the Dev Interrupted Discord community where we keep that type of conversation going all week long. I also wanted to say thank you to the more than 2,000 of you who are now subscribed to our weekly newsletter. We bring you articles from the community, inside information on weekly pods, and a first look at Interact 2.0 on April 7th, 2022. Again, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Thank you, Dad. It's been great to talk to you again. 